This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast, brought to you by the team behind BikeRadar.com, Cycling Plus, and MBUK magazines. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe. And if you can do so, leave us a rating on your podcast provider of choice. It really helps us reach other cyclists like you. Welcome to the Bike Radar Podcast. My name is George Scott, the Editor-in-Chief of Bike Radar, and today I am joined by Deputy Editor Jack Luke, and Ashley Quinlan, one of our senior road technical editors on Bike Radar. Good morning, chaps. Good morning, George. Good morning. Well, today we are going to bring you one of our buyer's guides because we have been thrown into the depths of autumn with winter fast approaching here in the Northern Hemisphere. So we're going to talk about road lights. If you are a regular listener to the podcast, you will have noticed that we had a buyer's guide to mountain bike lights in recent weeks. And we'll put the link to that podcast in the description. So do check it out if you're an off-road rider. But here we're going to focus on road lights. But before we get going, Jack, I know you're a keen winter rider. However, the weather has been pretty grotty recently. So have you been venturing out or have you finally consigned yourself to getting on the turbo trainer? (laughs) You will never catch me riding indoors. I am very much a dedicated winter rider. I do enjoy night riding as well. And I have committed to a few spook zone rides, as I like to call them, already this season and enjoyed every single one of them. How about you, Ash? Where's your uh, your riding taken you recently? Uh, Well, I have done a tiny bit of Zwifting, um, more just to check that my power output is where I want it to be at this time of year. Um, But no, I I like to go outside as well, to be honest, Um, get a lot of testing done. Um, It's just the best place to do it, really. I like the fresh air. I I know last time we spoke on the podcast, you were nursing yourself back to, to full fitness after a knee injury. So what's the update there? Uh, it's, it's, it's coming along nicely, actually. I've been to seeing a sports therapist to help me out with that, uh, to cure any sort of underlying issues, which is going really well. Got an SNC program in place, um, and had a bike fit along the way as well, which uh, we're hoping to create some content around on soon. So, uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's gone really well as well. Brilliant. Well, both of you have referenced your desire to keep riding outside through winter. And if you are going to keep doing that, if you are going to log those winter miles, through these cold, dark months, then owning a decent set of bike lights is really important, whether you're uh, scooting from the, through the city to and from work or, or heading out into the, the depths of the lanes where they're kind of unlit and you need a, a light to illuminate the road ahead of you. So in this podcast, we're going to run through what you need to look for in a road light and hopefully along the way, smatter in some of our product recommendations, which you can also find on Bike Radar on our buyer's guide to the best road bike lights. So Jack, to kick us off, one of the key differences when looking at a set of road lights, in particular a front light, is the idea of choosing a light either to be seen with or to see with. And that's something you often see referenced by by brands. So can you describe what the key difference is there? Absolutely. So lights to be seen with are really designed primarily to improve your visibility on the road at night. And that's generally reflected in lower overall power outputs and generally a smaller form factor. They are designed for commuting and the idea being that you're going to be riding primarily in lit areas. So cheaper, less power and generally smaller. Lights, on the other hand, to see will have a much, much higher power and 
we tend to suggest around 400 lumens as being the minimum for that, though it depends on the design of the light as a whole. And the idea is that on unlit roads or perhaps on poorly lit streets, these will show you the way ahead, highlighting any imperfections in the road or oncoming cars and that kind of thing. Excellent. Well, you've referenced lumens there, so let's kind of start with some of the, the basics. And Ash, I'm going to test you and put you on the spot here. What is a lumen? Uh, in short, a lumen is a unit of measurement uh, that measures the amount of light that a light source can produce. So if you imagine if you imagine uh, one LED, the amount of light that that LED produces, uh, that, that diode produces, we will, will, uh, is your lumen rate. Uh, so you'll see brands... Uh, usually, and it's the most common measurement, I think, um, they, they'll quote how many lumens that the LED or LEDs will produce from their front light. Very impressive. You've done your homework for this podcast. Uh, Jack referenced there the fact that we uh, we typically kind of recommend starting at around 400 lumens if you want to, to see with a light. But certainly if you are a regular rider um, on unlit roads or unlit lanes, then you know, 600 lumens to a, a thousands is definitely the, the kind of the place to be. So, Ash, when you're kind of out doing your night riding and you're perhaps venturing out into the lanes where there aren't streetlights to to help with, uh, you know, seeing the way ahead of you, what do you kind of look for? Uh, the road ahead of me, uh, but that's not the question you asked. Uh, <laughs> no, I think I think when I'm when I'm looking for a light to see when I haven't got any street lamps around me, I'm looking for a, a wide beam uh what you can get with a lot of um brighter lights so higher lumens etc you will find that the beam will flood a little a lot better because it's got a lot of um sort of a lot of light in which to be able to do that um i'm looking for a good focused beam as well at at the furthest point so if i want to be able to ride a lot faster or keep my speed up you know that i would normally ride at about summer sort of speeds then I'll need something that can actually focus on being further up the road so I've got time to react to whatever's coming along as well. Um, generally speaking on the road, those are the, my two key things that I'm looking for. A strong focused beam and something that diffuses the light very well as well. I mean, that idea of choosing a light that's bright enough to match your, your riding speed. I mean, Jack, can you talk a bit more about that? Because riding at night is very different in terms of your perception of speed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, riding at lower speeds feels faster off-road. Your your eyes are less focused on what's going on around you and you are just in this little beam of, of light. So um, you don't necessarily need an absolute lumen bazooka on the front of your bike to uh, blind oncoming drivers. But if you are riding at higher speeds, going up in terms of overall power is definitely something worth considering. And it's not uncommon for road lights to see up to about a thousand lumens. And as a fun little extra, just because we were on the subject of power, you will sometimes also see lights referred to as their lux power. And that's more general, uh, generally speaking, on dynamo lights, which we'll come on to. But lux is a measure of how much light falls on a surface compared to how much is outputted. So you know how much light actually reaches its intended destination. Um, and about 100 lux is what you'll see on the best sort of road-going lights there. And there's not an easy conversion between the two, between lumens and lux, but it is another uh, measure of power overall. But a, a good way to a good way to sort of conceptualise it in your mind is if you've got a thousand lumen, a thousand lumen light um, that puts out a thousand lumens. Uh, if the beam is not very well focused, the lux that falls upon a surface won't be as as concentrated or exactly. as high. Exactly. Yeah. Jack, you mentioned a, a lumen bazooka there, and I think you know if anyone who listened to our mountain bike lights buyers guide, I think Alex referenced an eight thousand lumen light, which you know, basically turns night into day if you're out on the trail. But you certainly do not need that if you are 
purely a, a road rider or even just doing some kind of light off-road riding on on bridleways or um, perhaps a, uh, an unlit cycle path. So to kind of tidy up the, the lumen section, if you're riding in the city, looking at around 400 lumens or less is, is fine because you are looking for a light for which other road users can see you. But if you're heading onto unlit lanes and unlit roads, then around 600 to 1,000 lumens will, will generally be fine. And the higher your speed and the more serious you, uh, rider you are, the higher lumen count we would probably recommend. Ash, you alluded to some of the other features to, to look for in a light beam pattern being one of them, but also uh, battery life is a key point and the battery itself, the modes, the mounting system, charging, and we'll also br talk briefly about rear lights as well, because if you have a front light, then you certainly need a rear one. But to start with batteries and battery life, Jack, talk to me about how road lights are, are set up, because in the mountain bike world, quite often the battery is external to the light, but that's not often the case when you're using a, a, a light designed specifically for the road. Absolutely, yes, particularly on lights to be seen with, it's it's the case that they are always a all-in-one kit, essentially. So the battery is integrated into the light. Normally, they're quite long and thin um, in terms of layout. Uh, but yeah, on road lights, they're generally an all-in-one unit. On some slightly more higher-powered lights, you will get a separate battery, but usually it's an all-in-one unit. Why would someone choose a light with an external battery? Can we rule that out for, for mode road use cases? No, not necessarily. I think the external battery just means you can have a larger battery without the light itself, the whole unit becoming excessively bulky. And on a road bike in particular, where you're going to have less space around the clamping area, they become quite disruptive and might interrupt your ability to use the tops. Uh, on a mountain bike, that's not an issue because you've got like 800 millimetres of real estate to play with. Um, but normally you will see the, the batteries mounted uh, elsewhere on the bike. But for road lights, it tends to be one, sometimes quite bulky, uh, all-in-one unit, and it takes up slightly less space on the bars. I think that idea of kind of considering your um, your kind of cockpit layout and how much space you have on the bars is quite important because there's some quite clever mounting systems out there these days that help keep things as, as clean and tidy as possible, which we'll come on to. Um, Ash, to go to you, run times are also clearly key when we're talking about batteries and, and battery life. So the, clearly the more powerful a light is, the shorter the runtime will be on that most powerful setting. So what do you need to consider when balancing power output, battery life and claimed run times for manufacturers? Well, you should always take claimed run, run times with a pinch of salt. Um, every time we review a light, um, we will obviously test the uh, actual run time such as it is. Um, we'll certainly do that in the most powerful setting um, as well as possibly a, a lower powered setting as well to give some context to that. Um, but it's. I, I think. I think. I think having a, a uh, considering what what you need and how long you need to ride with that light for over one ride is is probably the most important thing you need to consider. And it could be that you may decide you only need six hundred lumens um, of of output, uh, but you need to ride with that light for four hours. But in order to achieve that, you need a unit that's a lot bigger that potentially has a mode that could do a thousand lumens on it but you don't necessarily need to use that mode but what you're buying there is the battery power and the capacity in that battery to give you that runtime you need at the power that you need it that's a really good point often as you say the maximum output of of your light um, isn't necessarily the the mode that you're going to use most often but it will allow you to achieve a usable runtime at a lower output I think I'd, I'd just agree with that. Being realistic with how you want to ride in the winter is probably best yes, advice. Yeah. Like, you know, when I ride with battery lights, like I, d I don't go out usually for more than an hour or two in an evening. And if I can get a decent power out of that for an hour or two, 
okay, sure, maybe another light could do 10 hours at that power, but I'm not going to go do a 10-hour odd axe in the middle of winter at night. So it's not a problem. So as always with buying decisions, consider what is most realistic for your riding goals. I mean, let's imagine you are going to go out and do a 10-hour winter Ordax and you need, say it's an overnight Ordax, let's really kind of put the put the challenge, ah. put the challenge down. Um, how do you know you've got enough battery life to last you through that Ordax? Are there any features that you should look out for on some specific lights to, to kind of ensure you've got enough illumination to see you through to sun, sunrise? The very best lights, I used a Blackburn Dayblazer, I think it was called, uh, and that was a very intelligent light which included an LCD display with an actual percentage remaining, um, showing you how much battery life you've got. Like That is the, the kind of the golden standard. Some lights, a lot of exposures, for example, will include an app so you can connect it to your phone. Might seem a little bit gimmicky, but like if you want to get an actual accurate reading of what you've got left and estimated runtime, fantastic. And then the cheaper lights will typically have an illuminated switch more often than not that will flash different colors to give you an estimation of how much battery life you have left. Um, but my first port of call would be reading Bike Radar's fantastic independent reviews to find out exactly which light will last long enough. Shameless plug, but a very important one. Um, we do have dozens of uh, of light reviews. And as I said at the top of the podcast, we've summarized the best bike lights we've tested in our buyer's guide. And we will put a link to that in the description. Ash, let's move on to beam pattern. You mentioned this earlier and, and the idea of wanting a, a focused beam pattern, which is quite different often to what a mountain biker or off-road rider might want, where they want uh, a flood of light that's going to illuminate both the trail and, and some of the context and, and forest around them. Um, so, you know, why is it important to have a focus beam if you're riding predominantly on the road? Uh, well, having a focus beam will mean that the lights can travel further because uh, as light travels through the air, it loses its potency. So when it lands on, you know, something that's a surface that's further away, you won't get as much light landing on that. The lux rating that we talked about earlier, you won't have as much light there. So you need that high power at the light and you need it focused well enough so that it can shine the light where you want it to be as you're riding through you know the the the, the winter trails not trails through the winter road you know is it also important to have some light in the periphery to to kind of provide that context as to what's going on around you i personally think it is i don't think it's a hard and fast rule as to whether you actually need that or not depending on the riding you're doing I prefer to have it. Um, I don't necessarily need the furthest beam. I'm, I'm happier uh, riding at a slightly s slower pace, so I don't need as much time to react to what's coming uh, right in front of me. But I like to see what's coming beside me because there's lots of lots of animals, squirrels, <laughs> rabbits, and so on out there at the moment that uh, you know have a, have it in for me. I want to be able to see them coming. Um, plus, it's also important as well for seeing junction edges of junctions and so on when you're turning into into one, for example. Um, and for peripheral vision as well, if there's more lights coming out and landing around you, uh, being diffused outwards, then something that's said maybe you know a car or or a person standing at, at that angle is going to be able to see you a little bit easier than something that doesn't diffuse a light that far. Absolutely, and I know Wiltshire. The lanes of Wiltshire are renowned for their nocturnal wildlife at this time of year. So God knows what's yeah. out there, <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. trying to trying to hunt you down. Yeah. Um, you know, the beam pattern is very important, but also what you do with that beam pattern is is absolutely key. So, I mean, Jack, let's talk a little bit about etiquette. What should you do with your beam and where should you point it? Not into other people's eyes. That's the key thing. I mean, from a from a pure safety perspective, it's obviously a foolish idea to be pointing a giant bright light into the eyes of a driver because 
as it would be if you were driving a car, they can't see you. It's going to be very distracting and hard to, um, more than anything, judge depth and how far away you are from them. And if they're dazzled, they won't be able to see you. If you're on a shared use path, it's also a good idea to either cover the top of your light or if you feel comfortable doing so, very slightly kind of cover it itself so you are not blinding oncoming users. But really, just use your common sense. Don't point it up straight into the eyes of oncoming drivers and keep it pointed a little bit down. And really just ask yourself, like, do you need to see what the tree canopy above you looks like? Probably not if you're riding, unless you are out specifically spotting owls. Absolutely, yeah. And I think many lights will offer some movement, either on the, the light bracket itself between the, the unit and, and the mount or between the mount and the handlebar. Um, there's a Lazine um, light that I'm using at the moment where you can quite quickly and easily just kind of rotate the the beam downwards if you need to, if you've got a car approaching or a, uh, another rider approaching on a, on an unlit lane. Uh, I think we've all, or, or anyone who's a motorist certainly, or been in a car, will have been in a situation where a car's approached you with its light still on full beam and it's, you know, it's not a good situation to be in. So also a key point to remember if you're out on the bike. Related to that, there are also STVZO lights. So ASH, this is a light designation that came out of Germany, but is kind of gaining prominence elsewhere. So let's start with a description of what an STVZO light is. Uh, without getting into the minutiae of the detail, the STVZO is essentially a set of regulations that dictate um, the the beam shape uh, and the the brightness of that beam as it applies onto the road. So lux is really important here because it's how that as Jack mentioned earlier, it's how that beam interacts with the road and what you can see on the road. So what you'll find is that it will cut off elements of the beam that might uh, get into the eyes of traffic coming towards you or um, or, or to, to the periphery as well a little bit. Um, we're talking about front lights here, but that also applies to rear lights as well, where I believe flashing patterns are, are banned as well. So you can only use static patterns. So you can't have a flashing front light as well with STVZO regulations. And those regulations, uh, in terms of the law, apply specifically in, in Germany, but STVZO compliant lights are becoming more widely available elsewhere. We do have a, a, a test ongoing of some of these lights at the moment, so I'm sure you'll see them in, on Bike Radar in, in the coming months. But there are also some lights that incorporate perhaps some of the thinking behind STVZO lights in a different format. So uh, I know that one we're, we're looking at at the moment is the Trek Ion Pro Commuter, I think it's called. And, you know, that's not necessarily compliant to those regulations, but it does have a feature called Kime Beam, where there's effectively a, a high and a, a low beam mode. Is that right, Ash? And you've been looking after this one. Uh, yes. Yeah, essentially. So kind of the, the whole principle of it is it gives you the best of both worlds, uh, much like, you know, if, if you're traveling around in a car, everyone's got a high beam and a low beam. The low beam is automatically uh, dimmed downwards to stop, uh, um, you know, you uh, glaring into other driver's eyes on the other side of the road. In this country, the face is a particular direction. So, you you know, the traffic on the other side of the carriageway isn't getting blinded by you. It's why you put your reflectors on the front of your car lights, um, or at least in, in recent times, perhaps car, car lights are sent uh, are um, intelligent enough to be able to switch over themselves but uh, in in re in recent times you always had to put a reflectors on to shield that beam but the principle applies uh, for for bike lights as well you have a high beam and a low beam and it helps you stop uh, you know glaring into people's eyes i'm going to keep this brief because it's a definitely a pet subject of mine i'm a big fan of stvzo lights but one of the reasons they become more popular is that with that heavily shaped beam you can generally opt for a lower powered light 
that will put the light where you want it for road riding. And as such, your run times will generally be greater. I'm personally a big proponent of them for just general riding outside of the legal reasons, because I think they're very, very good. And we do have a full buyer's guide for SD Vizio lights alongside that test on site. We do. And, and Ash, you mentioned um, the fact that lights on, on cars are becoming smarter. But you know, another light that we're looking at at the moment is the Exposure Strada uh, Active. I think it's called Active right. with a K. Yep. And that's very similar in how it works. Yeah, it's got a sensor on the front that essentially um, senses other light sources in front of you and it dips your beam. Um, again, cars tend to come with this these days, but um, it's nice to see that kind of innovation coming to to cycling even even if it means you don't have to take your hands off you know off the bars and to to uh, you know change the mode for example some lights have a remote as an accessory but if it doesn't then you don't have to faff around with it it will just happen i've actually ridden behind felix smith our video manager he has the rear light version of the exposure active and i can confirm it is very very good it actually works very very well it turns off from a flashing mode to a steady mode when it detects a light right behind you which is great if you're riding in a group it's really good that is good to know. And we, we also have both of these lights, the, the Trek light and the exposure light, um, out for test at the moment. So we will deliver our full verdict and actually how useful and usable those features are uh, in the coming weeks and months. Let's move on to the various modes that uh, a light can offer. And you know, typically this covers both the, the output, so from you know, a, a low lumen output through to medium and high, but also steady and, and flashing modes. And I'll come to you here, Jack, because you commissioned an excellent feature last year with some of the uh, legalities around flashing and steady lights that um, Ash has touched upon, but also perhaps what's safest to use. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, a, it's quite an emotive subject, I dare say, and it's you know, a subject of ire quite often from drivers. But the the key facts are that flashing lights can be safer in terms of improving your visibility, provided they're used alongside a steady beam. The reason being is that research generally shows that uh, flashing lights make depth perception, particularly in busy environments, very, very difficult to judge from a driver or, or rider's perspective. Um, it's kind of pairing the two of them together will give you the best chance of, okay, this is a flashing light. My The lizard side of my human brain is spotting a flashing light, but with the steady light keeping you actually visible in between those flashes. The legalities of it depend on uh, country to country, but here in the UK, essentially, provided it meets a minimum lumen and, uh, requirement, which all modern lights do, and as long as it flashes no faster than four hertz, which is four times per second, then you're pretty much fine. However, I would say that from an S-kit perspective, keeping that flashing a little lower than 4 hertz would be well advised. Um, it's just very unpleasant being behind a very, very fast flashing light. But if you want to increase your chances of um, being visible, pairing that flashing light with a steady one is your best bet. And as a final point, it doesn't relate specifically to lights, but improving your visibility at night, the best chances you can do is fitting either a steady light or reflectors to your heels when you're riding or your pedals. That kind of weird up and down movement is very, very um, noticeably a cyclist from a driver's perspective. Nobody else kind of mimics that movement on the road. I'd, I'd also I'd also say as well that I've got a, um, a Lazine Strip Drive Pro currently on test at the moment, so you'll see a review of that pretty shortly. Um, that has a very, very bright 300 lumen output um, it will it, it's incredibly incredibly bright but what it also can do is blend a flashing mode with a static mode as well within the one unit so it's worth looking for that as well if you want 
you know, it, not all brands have, are great at being able to describe what the modes do mm-hmm. um, when, when you're looking at, say, their, their brand page or whatever, their product page. So um, when when, we, when I come to review that, I'll be sure to let you know if it's a good one. But we should be doing that across all lights anyway, shouldn't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a good point, Ash. I think you know, that, that's a, a rear light that, that you have there, but also, uh, you know, both on front and rear lights, there's often yes. a, a, yeah. a, a pulsing mode, which is kind of that, that idea of it remains steady whilst adding a, f- a flash on top which i think is you know certainly useful when i've used it um ash to kind of talk a little bit about your kind of preferred setup jack alluded to the the idea of running two lights at the front two lights at the rear potentially at any one time is that something you like to do or do you kind of just stick with the one i like to stick with the one clean lines on my bike um are very, <laughs> style, very, style over safety exactly exactly no i think i think having the right light means that you don't necessarily need to have two that's my opinion on it although having two there is definitely a utility for having two for sure um so i like to run you know just one front one rear centrally on the bike um i like to mount mine um beneath my garmin mount on my on my bike as well so it doesn't clutter up the uh the, the the bar stem setup um looks really really nice on my bike actually i'm really pleased with how it all integrates <laughs> so uh yeah yeah that's that's how i like to run mine anyway and i'm quite happy just to strap a uh a light onto the onto the seat post or um occasionally i have a, a another light that sometimes i use which can which has a little clip on it like you would have like a belt clip and that just goes onto the back of my topic saddlebag no problem at all it's not a topic light actually but it's uh it's a light that that does attach in that way and it's it's super useful as well if i don't if you don't happen to have the seat post space for example i don't necessarily recommend mounting them onto your chains not uh your seat stays your seat stays yep uh i don't i don't recommend that on the basis that it kind of shines the light upwards because of the natural angle of the stay itself that being said you can i believe get a light or two out there on the market that does compensate for that and they're designed specifically to be put on on in that location but they're very few and far between as a general rule just assume it doesn't i think um there's no right or wrong to this and it kind of depends on what i've got charged up at the time but i I tend to stick with uh jack's kind of school of thought certainly at at the front i like to run kind of a little blinking light often kind of a nog one um which are very good just to to kind of try and attract attention um and then the the more kind of high powered light have that on the the constant beam um partly so i can see where i'm going so we've covered modes and what you can expect from modes and, and steady versus pulsing and flashing. But also I think it's important to consider if you are a serious night rider, how you get between those various modes. Jack, do you have any experience here of, of what a good setup is or what a good light offers in terms of being able to find a, a usable mode quickly for the type of ride you're doing? Yeah, there's a lot of variation between how well brands do this. The majority of lights, you scroll through modes uh, based on the button. I, I'm very much generalizing here, but normally it'll be a long press of the button to turn it on, and then a single short press to scroll between modes. The worst lights don't remember the mode that you were on previously, which is incredibly annoying, especially if the first mode that comes on is a disaster. You know, it's it's some horrible, really gnarly one that's going to blind drivers around you. Um, But the best lights will remember the previous mode you're on, and hopefully you can just do a very quick click to scroll between them all. Um, some lights will have slightly more advanced controls. That Blackburn light I referred to had sort of left and right buttons to flick between the two. But the um, yeah, the kind of way I described there with the individual clicks is is more common. I think as well, some lights where you you pay more, you do get a more kind of complex or advanced um, you know program uh, opportunity to program the modes as as you need them. And you know, I think if you are a serious night rider, that's something to consider. You know, it can be. 
um, an annoying and, and borderline dangerous sometimes if you're out in a, a lane and you want to switch from one mode to the next, but the sequence that the light is set up to a standard takes you from the, the most powerful output to a, a flashing beam and all of a sudden you can't see where you're going. So having some functionality whereby you can customize the light and customize the modes is very useful, but not necessarily essential if you're just going to dabble in with night riding. And to that point as well, I mean, you can get... Um... You can get um, apps as well on your phone, which may, as Jack sort of mentioned earlier, they may sound gimmicky. They may sound like they're making a, a deal out of nothing. But actually, I've tested lights in the past where it links up to your phone. You can then customize the modes that you need. So when if, you, if you've if you got a, a light which has got eight or nine modes, which generally speaking is totally unnecessary, to be honest, you know, you could then you could shut that down to say having two or three modes that you will use, a flashing mode, a combined mode um, or, or a static mode job done i'd say of apps and integration in general like 10 years ago five years ago i would have very much scoffed at this sort of stuff but i think we're as as a society we're used to tech and integrations with apps more generally and as such like the, the products the apps have got better so it's it's not something to discredit absolutely from the offset apps and integrations with lights it's not the worst thing in the world same also with kind of um integration if you're lucky enough to ride with an electronic group set having the ability to scroll between modes from for example the buttons on the top of di2 is pretty cool in a tron-like way but also actually genuinely really useful well firstly it sounds like i need to get myself one of these lights with app integration because i can't imagine that being very useful but actually can you describe that the idea of linking your di2 group set with, with a light as well and also how you can in some examples link your computer to um, the battery life on your lights. Yes, I know that Garmin and Bontrager certainly offer that. I'd, I'd struggle to say off the top of my head, head who else offers integration with DI2. But essentially in DI2 shifters on the road, you have two auxiliary buttons built into the hoods of the lights, uh, into the hoods of the shifters rather. And clicking one or other of those will allow you to shift between modes on the lights wirelessly. Very cool and like genuinely quite functional because it means you don't have to take your hands off of the brake levers to change between modes and it's just a really nice neat integration some uh lights will offer remotes to essentially do the same functionality but integration's cool i've used those dit buttons on on the top of hoods once to, to change gear and you feel a bit like a fighter pilot using them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to, to wrap up this section on on modes let's talk briefly about daytime uh, daytime modes, daytime running lights. Ash, that Lazine Strip Drive Pro um, light that you mentioned with the 300 lumen output, which is very high for a rear light. Um, I imagine Lazine would describe that that most powerful mode, the 300 lumen mode, as suitable for for daytime use because the more power you have, the more likely it is to um, attract a driver's attention when the sun is out, or, or you know, when when at least there is some ambient light, even if it is a, a gloomy or wet day. Yeah, essentially that. Um... So, I mean, they would describe that as it will cut through the ambient light that you've got, whether it's a dim sort of day or um, a, a bright summer's day. Actually, having those lights on your bike is, is, a, is, a, is a sensible thing to have year round these days. I don't always carry them. When it's uh, bright, bright sunshine, you know, during the summer, if I'm wearing colourful kit or I've got a colourful bike or whatever, I like to think I'm f pretty well seen. That's a personal thing. But I totally understand it when I'm out with a club ride, for example. I've got friends who are just running a, a daytime running light on their bike, for example. Absolutely, go ahead, because if it helps you be seen in any situation, then go for it. 
I would say on this point, um, it's not actually the law to ride uh, with a light during the day. But if you are interested in learning more about the law and lights um, in the UK, all you really need to know is that you have to use them between sunset and sunrise quite specifically. Um, But using them during the day is very much a choice. But if you would like to learn more about lights and the law, head to the link in the video description, in the podcast description, because we do have a full guide there. And Jack, I know daytime running lights, that's another emotive subject. What's, what's your take? Do you use uh, a light in the day, particularly in winter? Uh, I, in winter, tend to ride a bike with dynamo lights. So I have lights on all the time, regardless. Uh, but no, I, I do usually, unless I am riding in a group, as Ash says, where it might be a bit antisocial and you would hope that we're visible as a big group. Um, I do personally tend to run them. I would normally go for a steady light on the front and a flashing right on the rear. Um yeah, I, I don't know. I I think my perceptions have changed over time where, again, maybe like 10 years ago, I just didn't really think about it. But as it's become more normalized and perhaps marketed a bit more, it is something I'm more conscious of being visible through lights as well as how I choose to dress. Um, I'd, also, I'd also point out as well that sometimes you can, you it, there's an argument to say you could go slightly too powerful. So um, although I will, I will, I will spoil no, no, no conclusions in my review of, of the Lasagne light. Three hundred lumens is an awful lot for a red light on the back of your on the back of your bike. Um, so there is there, there, there's a school of thought and an argument to say that actually that's quite distracting because it's so bright um, and you can't control which direction it's it's kind of you can you can mount it in a certain way but you can't control exactly if it's impacting on someone's eyes and so on, there's an argument to say it could be slightly distracting as well as drawing attention to you. You can go over the that optimum sort of attraction level, if you, if you see what I mean, you know, notice me level. Um, but you can see what I think about that in my review. Well, look out for that one. I think just, just to kind of re- recap on that and to jump back to lumens at the start, when we talked about the idea of having between 600 and, and 1,000 lumens, that was, of course, referring to a front light you know, generally speaking, what, 100 lumens upwards or around 100 lumens is absolutely fine for a rear light? I think so. 100 to 150 is is your gold standard, uh, look at me, uh, sort of light. I don't, I, any more than that is not necessary. But as I say, you could choose to have it because, you know, it's it's a peace of mind thing as well. You ride more confidently and, and I won't say properly, but you ride more confidently if you if you know you've got a better chance of being seen from behind you. You know, you don't flinch when a car comes up ne- up near you, for example, because you know there's a better chance that you've been seen. At least that's the experience I have. Excellent. Well, let's move on to, to mounting systems now, because you know, hopefully in most examples, um, you know, you're kind of looking for a fit and forget mount. But there are different systems out there and they're not all as easy to use as uh, they could be. So, Jack, talk to me about your experience with using the various different type of, of mounts and, and what you look for when you're setting up your lights. Sure. So lights tend to be... Uh mounted in one of two ways a design that's designed to be taken off easily and removed easily and ones which are a bit more fixed uh, the likes of commuter lights will tend to be designed to just be taken off every day taken up to your office and charged and that's reflected in the fact they have a lower battery life um, other lights might have a more secure system which use hinged clamps for example or as ash alluded to slightly more integrated options that fit into garmin mounts for example or out front mounts Um, they will be a bit more secure and less wobbly as a result. Um, For commuting lights day to day, I think having a removable mount is a very good thing, but having the light be able to remove from that mount is also worth considering. Ladder locks, which see normally a silicon band 
and sort of ladder shape fitted to go around a hook are very, very good and very easy to remove. However, over time, I don't think I've ever had one which hasn't broken after a couple of seasons of use. So being able to remove the light from that so it doesn't get stolen when you leave it locked up is definitely a good thing to look for. Um, but equally, you don't want to be having your lights completely fixed and bolted on if it is for a commuter light bike because then it'll be a pain to remove them every time. Yeah, don't do what I do where I fixed mine via a GoPro adapter mount um, and now I can't move it. Um, and to recharge it, it needs to have a cable that runs into the back of it. And so I've needed to buy a really long um, micro USB, USB cable in order to plug it in using the, the plug I have available at home. So it it's... I created a problem for myself and I've, I've gotten over it now, but um, it's it's not the easiest thing in the world. If you do need to take it off, charge it at, at work and so on, you'd have to get your Allen key out and unscrew the bolt and then drop it out. And they're not always the easiest things to fit either because the tolerances are always quite tight. Um, that being said, um, it, it fits super solidly and it isn't going to come off at any time because it's it's threaded right in there. So it is something we pay very close attention to in our reviews because not all light mounts are made equally. And, uh, you know, we will we will score a light down for a poorly designed mount. There are fewer of them these days, but they're not all perfect. Yeah. Jack, I know you had quite a cool setup on your bike a couple of years ago. You've since moved to a dynamo, but you kind of integrated the the out front mount, as, uh, as Ash alluded to earlier, with the light, which kept the the handlebar nice and clean and also just puts the light in a in quite a sensible position so what what are the various options out there for someone looking to go down that route so i had a k edge out front mount much like ash with a gopro yeah. underside um well basically it's like a three prong mount designed to mount a gopro cat eye i have quite a few cat eye lights to their credit they make a really good range of uh additional mounts for you know wherever you want they do fork mounts they do uh uh, the GoPro adapter mount as I'm using and also things like helmet straps. In this case, I got the GoPro adapter that slides really nicely into the cat eye light and then that fits to the underside of the K-Edge mount. A little bit of a, a bodge, if you like, but a very in, very, very neat bodge. Um, some brands such as Bond Treasure as well will kind of create lights or rather mounts to go alongside the lights which integrate with their stems. That's a really, really nice solution um, and keeps the front end of the bike really, really clean. But more critically, I dare say, very, very secure. A wobbling light is really annoying. Um, in fact, Felix Smith, to besmirch his good name, I was behind him a couple of weeks ago on a ride and he had a light which remained unnamed with a very wobbly, wobbly mount and it was so distracting riding behind him where I thought he had it on a very high like strobe mode. Very unpleasant. And the sort of thing you should not be looking for in a light. I think he was probably just trying to encourage you to take a turn on the front. <laughs> Quite possibly. <laughs> the the Bontrager system you mentioned, I think it's, it's Blender with no Blender, E. Blender, yeah, that's it. For some reason. Um, is there is there kind of um, system for, for kind of integration around kind of computers and lights? And it is a, it is a very smart system. There's, there's lots of options if you check out the, the Trek website. Um, and generally, I've had, very, I've had very positive experiences with, with Bontrager lights and it's uh, good to see brands kind of taking the mountain side of things seriously as well because it can make a real difference to your overall bike setup. I think I'm going to have to revisit our guide on brands that are constantly named wrong because I go for Bontrager, but I think you're right, it's Bontrager. I think you're correct. I think we've done a video on that, didn't we? We did, you should check it out. <laughs> One of us is right at least. Well, maybe we're not. Maybe there's a third option. Um, okay, let's talk charging. I think the first point to, to kind of emphasize here is to remember to charge your lights and I think <laughs> that's, a, that's a reminder for me more than anyone. But also certainly over the past year, and particularly this season, we've seen lights move from micro USB to the new-ish USB-C standard. Ash, I know you're testing a few lights at the moment. So is that generally what you're seeing? 
Uh, it's really mixed, to be honest. Um, I've personally never had a problem with micro USB. Um, personally, I've never, I've never had it go wrong. Um, have you ever plugged the light in correct the first time though? Have you put it in upside down every single time? I concede I've done that so many times I can't count. Um, but it, it works just fine and there's not a problem with it. The thing about USB-C is it's not, it's not the fact that it will charge faster, although that is a handy hint, a handy hint, sorry, a handy, a handy positive. The main thing is that it's just a more secure and solid um, uh, protocol to, to 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 plug into the into the back of your light, um, and it will go in either each way, up upside down or or the other way, and um, and yeah, it it clicks in easily and and will and will charge your light just as well as anything else. USB C was designed as a standard. I might be slightly mixing things up here but as a standard for charging as well as data transfer micro usb on the other hand was originally designed as a standard for like cameras to get data off so as a sort of like in and out all the time charging thing it just that's not what it was initially designed for and i think that's why it's not quite so good and it's directional which is really annoying yeah it's also it's it's worth pointing out as well just because you've got a usb-c cable end that goes into the lights to charge it at the other end of that cable you can have whatever you like you can have usb-a you could have you could have just a plug Plug, you could have anything on the end of that um and you would still get the power in um if it's usb if it's usb-c it is two it can be two-way directional so you can you could draw power in some lights from the light and charge something else like your phone if it happens to have a usb-c connection on it um that's doable um in some lights but it's 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 really an added extra and and you'd only really want to do that if you were using your light as a uh as a, as a battery I think that that's yeah. I suppose bike packing trips is that's potentially a useful application yeah. um, in terms of being able to use your light to use it as a power bank to charge a computer or your or your phone or that kind of thing. Yeah, of computers people do it often. I think on a phone, I'd probably want the redundancy of a separate battery pack. As sure. a paranoid young man, but I think for as an auxiliary power source for your computer, like yeah, great, why not? And also, if your you know batteries do run out, they run out on or rather they. Uh, lose power over time. It's true of lights, it's true of computers. If you have a computer on its last legs and you don't want to replace it, it's quite a nice way to extend its life. God forbid your your phone running out of battery in the middle of nowhere and not being able to... Instagram. Instagram and and share share the beautiful surroundings of your most recent rides. Um, I think with with the the, the USB side of things, you know, most lights or or most... um, electrical applications are moving towards USB-C, but you know, ultimately it's not really um, the kind of thing to base your buying decision around unless you're particularly passionate about these kind of things. But I would I would agree that USB-C is generally easier and better to use, um, you know, albeit a kind of fairly marginal gain over micro USB. I'll point out as well that the cable I bought, the extra long cable I bought to fix to to, to plug, charge my front light, uh, actually has three ends on it. So it's got a lightning connector, a micro USB C, and a US a micro USB and a USB C connector. On the sorted front. for life. So I'm sorted. Whatever I have coming in for testing. There will be a new standard within years. Don't you worry about that. USB C D. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we've covered charging, mounting systems, modes, beam pattern, batteries, battery life, lumens. Is there anything else to add, Jack? Well, you know, I I couldn't talk about lights without talking about my favorite pet subject, dynamo lights, which is definitely a subject for another day. I will not uh, endure it, make you endure that. Dynamo lights are a whole other category of lights. 
um, which are in brief powered by the motion of your bike, generally speaking with a generator integrated into the front hub of your bike or via a separate accessory which runs on the rim or the tire. Dynamo lights have the advantage of being, well, having an infinite runtime. And, you know, generally they tend to be quite high, well-made, nicely integrated with bikes and just a good solid system. And personally, what I'd recommend for any dedicated night night rider, uh, we have a full buyer's guide written by me, commissioned by you, George, on Bike Radar. uh, And I urge you to read that or listen out for a future podcast where I will talk passionately and enthusiastically on the subject for quite some time. I think let's let's commit to doing that. We'll have a podcast on dynamos in the in the nearest future, certainly over over the winter, because you know, I, I've never used a dynamo, but you know the 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 benefit is obvious. But I think it can be um, a tricky subject to get your head around in terms of the options out there and setup and so on. So I'll, I'll be keen to learn more. Well, that I, I'd be pleased to do it. It's a subject which benefits from knowledge, which sounds quite arrogant, but it, as a as an overall category, it's not as well um, sort of standardized in terms of how information is shared compared to battery lights. So I, I hope I can digest that into a thrilling 40-minute podcast about dynamos, which I promise you I will do. Brilliant. We'll listen out for that one. And Ash, anything else to add from you on, uh, on the subject of lights? Um, the only thing that occurs to me really are radar systems Ooh. and radar lights um, that you, you can have. Now, usually they respond a bit like parking sensors in a car i suppose they sort of respond to obstacles and things that are approaching you from behind garmin has its various system which is pretty well publicized we've seen a few of their previous editions of their lights we've got the latest one in at the moment for testing um and yeah essentially the light should or could change modes and you know brighten up or do a more sort of staccato style flashing mode if someone someone is approaching at speed for example um and you can also get ones that that can sense when you're sort of slowing down as well the little little accelerometer inside that can sense when you're slowing down and will flash when you are pulling the brakes as well it's quite clever to be honest um but yeah there are there are sort of other themes of rear lights that you can get that change their modes depending on the surroundings as well uh, aside from having a light sensor on them Without getting too lost in the weeds, have you either of you used a radar light and what did you think of it? I have. George? I, I haven't, so I can answer that one very quickly and pass back to you, Ash. <laughs> oh, fair enough. Um, yes, I have. Um, and the inter- I mean, I can't tell what's going on behind me, um, you know, because I'm not always looking behind me yes. when I'm riding about. I'm always looking forwards um, at where I'm going. But, you know, usually these lights have a, you know, the, the, they have a radar sensor that talks to, so in this system, in this series of events i was using a garmin system it integrated very well with my garmin head unit um, and you can see on there where you know it give you sort of an estimation as to where the car is behind you so it gives you a little bit more awareness um did i end up re- relying upon it no i didn't um i prefer to use my ears um i certainly wouldn't ever ride my bike with earphones in i'm blocking out that really important sensory experience as you're riding along it's super important to be able to hear what's coming behind you um, another emotive subject for another day. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm very, I feel very strongly about that one. So you can you can have me on a podcast for that one there as well. Um, but yeah, essentially, you know, it, it doesn't change the way I ride, but it does give me something to sort of sort of look at and to be aware of in front of me. The guy, my my Garmin's screen will change color from green to yellow to red to tell me that something's approaching. It will give me a little dot marker to tell me that something's coming. It can do it with multiple things as well. So if I've got three cars behind me, it, it will usually spot those it usually doesn't mistake other riders 
for cars, which is helpful. Um, You're always going too quick to get past by other riders, aren't you? That's not true. <laughs> Absolutely not true. Uh, but yes, it's um, it is it's a very useful system, and I think peace of mind for for someone who wants it. Jack, I know you, you've had generally positive experiences before using the Gar- it's the Garmin radar. You correct? Yeah, I use the Varia. I only ask as I I know that when we reviewed the original system. Uh, the reviewer didn't really like it. He thought, thought it was quite distracting and not very helpful. Personally, I quite I had mixed experiences where in an urban setting, it was useless. Like, I, I, I know there's a bus behind me because I can hear it revving. And I had a really annoying quirk where you couldn't pause it. However, on very quiet back roads, I was pretty blown away by it. Like, it was very, very helpful and would often see cars long before I did. And I found the extra awareness only a net positive. I will say, though, I haven't really used it in a very long time, which maybe speaks to how necessary I think it is. But as a bit of tech, something I think is very cool. And I think a lot of riders who are maybe less used to being aware on the road or looking over your shoulder, whatever, I think not a bad thing to have. It's worth saying historically as well that the the, the actual light itself, if you strip out the, the radar and the extra money you would pay for that mm. radar, for the radar system, the light itself is a decent light yes, and is bright enough and does everything that you could want it to do. So having that little extra feature that, well, that, you know, it's a fundamental feature at the end of the day, but if you, if having that gives you that extra confidence to ride your bike, wherever it is you're riding it, then mm. it, it's no bad thing at the end of the day, I think. Mm. Well, Garmin was the, the first brand to certainly kind of popularize the, the idea of having a radar system integrated into a rear light but i think brighton also launched one this summer and i'm fairly sure there's another new one but i can't remember which brand it was it's a magic shine magic shine so there you go it is a a limited but growing um category so you know certainly have a, a look out for those radar lights if you think they'd be useful for you well, chaps, let's leave it there. Hopefully this has been a, an illuminating discussion. Oh, George, I can see how smug you are with that. And you've dazzled our listeners with your infinite knowledge on on bike lights. Um, but I think that's a, that's a good place to bring it to a close. I'm speechless, George. That's uh, absolutely astonishing. Good work. <laughs> well, if you want more witty puns, then make sure you uh, subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast through your podcast provider of choice. And please do leave us uh, a rating and review. We always value your your feedback and your uh, your generous ratings. It really helps us bump us up the podcast charts and get this out to other bike riders like yourself. If you have a, a question for us, either on the topic of bike lights or a suggestion for a, a new podcast, and do email us at podcast at bikeradar.com. Again, we always love hearing from you and we'll be sure to get back to you. We'll leave it there. Thank you much for listening and we will speak to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you've not done so already, please subscribe and share with your friends or leave us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. 